Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. You know, today I'd like to try to talk about an idea that I think is is relevant to nearly every human being in terms of how they interact with the, the overall human experience. And I think even in, in how it impacts the way that they, they navigate life. But it's an idea that is, I don't think the idea is in and of itself controversial, but it comes with so much emotional and religious baggage that I would have to ask people to just hold tight, to put some of your preconceived ideas aside. This is sort of what we do at Heterodox anyway. Uh, But really the charge in this place, especially because... You know, I think for people who have some religiosity and for people who are, you know, no matter where you are on the theistic sort of spectrum, for people who are irreligious or people who are very religious, uh, I would ask you to put the ideas about sin uh, that you have already aside and try to see this conversation not in um, not in a religious context but try to understand sin in in a way that I think we've never really tried to do before. So I'd like to talk about sin. Sin. Okay, that was the big reveal. We're going to hold on to ourselves today because uh, we're going to talk about sin. Do you think it's possible to talk about sin without invoking some kind of religious context? So I think for so many people... um, you know, there, there are two big ideas uh, around sin that are out there. Uh, the, there's a Judaic sense of sin that's tied to Adam and Eve and, you know, some other big ones. Uh, and I, I'll be the first to admit that I'm, I'm no expert um, around Noah and some of his sons. And then um, there's the Christian idea that comes a little bit later. But, uh, you know, that that's you came out of that world. You certainly know better than I do. Uh, how would... How would you contextualize, let's say, the Judeo-Christian idea of sin, just for comparison? Yeah, I think growing up, um, you know, later in my life, in in um, the context of faith, it was usually categorized as, you know, what you would hear is missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark. It is um, also, you know, Paul, who is, um, he comes later uh, after Christ, I think, I don't know how many years you might know you're kind of study that kind of stuff yeah 30 maybe 30 maybe more um after the death of jesus um but he talks a lot about it he talks a lot about it in romans um he talks about sin as um this transgression you know that it's a transgression um against god but one of these things that Paul says that, um, I don't know if you want to start off running, but one of these things that Paul says that I've always um, really related to was the struggle with sin. He talks about this in the book of Romans, um, 
where he says uh, that he does what he doesn't understand what he does. He says, "I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I don't do right, and what I hate, I do. What I hate, I actually do that thing. And if I do what I do not want to do." then I admit that the law is good. So he's saying there's something there that can keep me from doing all these things that I don't want to do. There's some kind of law here that I can say that will keep me from actually engaging in all these things that I'm prone to do, if not given some kind of corrective measure. So, you know, I want to, I mean, I I think I understand. And I always have to put it that way because Paul confuses me and I'm not sure I, I, I always understand what's happening, but I think I do. And I, I'd like to bring in a little bit uh, more outside of, of what what he's talking about, specifically Plato and the idea of acrasia, um, to give it more of a some philosophical underpinnings and to take it less out of the context of, uh, of just Paul. Um, but, but I think what Paul is saying is, is something that Plato noted... Um, at the same time, which is that there are... So when we talk about the problem of acrasia, there's this discounting that we do for the thing that we have in the moment uh, versus something that we might come to later uh, that we that we judge for ourselves to be more important. And I, I think that that is in there in the idea of how we think about sin. It, when modern philosophers talk about the problem of acrasia, one of the, like, the common examples is it's when your alarm clock goes off. And you know that you have to get up and go to work, but there's a, there's a, there's essentially you start making deals with yourself. There's a certain amount of things that you need to accomplish before you go to work. Maybe it's take a shower, uh, wash your hair, do the dishes that you left in the sink, and then be off uh, with your day. But the problem of the crazy is that there are these things that you should do that you put off. Um, because you want the immediacy of whatever's happening now. So you might snooze for 10 more minutes. And invariably, you make this deal, like everyone knows this, you make this deal with yourself. I'll just sleep 10 more minutes, you know what? I'll take a shower, but I won't wash my hair. It's okay. Mm, So you start taking things off your to-do list. Right. And then you hit the snooze again, and then you make another deal with yourself. You know what? I'm not going to worry about these dishes before I leave the house. I'll do them once I come home. I'm not going to take a shower. I'm going to get as many of these last few minutes in while I'm snoozing, totally uh, right, yeah. and everyone has made these deals. This is the problem of acrasia, and it sounds to me like Paul has sort of hit upon mm-hmm. this thing. It was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I know that I should do this other thing, yeah, but I don't do it. Right, um, and that sort of acratic problem, I, I think, is one. It's not solved. Philosophers still talk about it, but I think it's related to sin in a, in a particular kind of way. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it is that kind of the deals that you make with mostly a lot of times with yourself. Like, um, I should do this, but do I really have to, you know, can I, can I just skip it this time and doing the thing, you know, what, you know, for me, it's like taxes. Like (laughs) what is the tax tax deadline? How much can I shoot it up to the very inch of turning it in? And those two days before I'm saying, you know, I really, I really should, I I should, I know that this is the way to go and this is what's going to make my life much better. And it's probably going to make a better, you know, a form that I turn in, but yeah, I keep saying no. And then I get to this place where I have to do it. And I think, wow, I knew, I knew that I should have done this four nights ago. And, And why didn't I? So it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that that is a related, but so 
we probably won't get to obedience and disobedience, but I think um, I think the problem of sin is related to the problem of obedience and disobedience at the emotional level. So here's what I mean when I say the emotional level. I'm making an argument ultimately um, that sin is actually an emotion. It's something that we feel. Uh, and I, I think it's something that nearly everyone feels. But in order to talk about sin, in some ways, I think we have to talk about love first. Okay. Uh, there's a so when we look at the the way that we've tried to understand the neurochemistry and the neuropsychology of what's happening with people at the emotional level, it turns out that there are all these chemicals that we can identify and all of these mental um, sort of parts of the brain, all these parts of the brain that get activated when we're having certain emotional experiences. Mm-hmm. Enough to say that the emotions that we experience are actually biochemical, right? Our emotions are chemical. Yeah, that's how, yeah, I think that's how we're organized, absolutely, yeah. And that's important for, I think that's important for people to understand that fear has a chemistry associated with it, right? Love has a chemistry associated with it. Uh, In particular, there was, um, there is a woman, her name is Barbara Fredrickson, she writes about positivity and love. Uh, she has a, a book called Love 2.0. And one of the things that she tries to do is to separate the sort of cultural ideas that we have around love from the biology of love. Now, when you think about love, it comes with you know love of your children and love of country and love for the person that you saw walking down the street and love for your spouse and depending on you know where you are in this whole thing love can seem like it, it's very many different things you know there are love songs that talk about how love hurts and love sucks and there are love songs that talk about how love you know one year of love is better than a lifetime alone mm-hmm. that, that's queen in case you know that's oh, a little queen lyric right there the queen reference. got it um but we get so many messages from what love means in religion and love means in the culture and love means the broken heart that it's hard to, if you were to ask any individual person, well, what is love? It becomes very hard to sort of say it's this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the beauty of the science is Barbara Fredrickson says, actually, it's this set of experiences that happens here. Here's the chemistry that comes out of it. And in very many ways, it explains so many of the other ideas that are cultural ideas that we have about love. But you know, for her, separating the cultural understanding of love is important. Um, and I, I, I'd like to do something similar. I think that's, I think that is important. I think it would be important with love. It's probably going to be important with sin. I'm excited to hear it. I think this gives people a context. I, you know, just a, a little bit of an antidote. Um, You know, I've had so much success with this, you know, with Barbara Fredrickson's research with Mm. my own clients when they have declared, you know, their loneliness or there's nothing in my life that I can look to. And I can actually point to science and say, well, but you can, though. Um, You know, Barbara Barbara Fredrickson say that love is that little moment where you exchange the hello with the neighbor, you know. 10 minutes where you're both mirroring each other. You are in connection. There's, um, there's rapport. And she says in that 10 minutes, your brain chemistry is shifting and you are experiencing love. And I think that when we get to practice something like this, it makes huge, a huge difference in how we approach life. I think you're right. You know, love in this, um, 
ambiguity, you know, that there's so many ways, you know, even clients will say, you know, in the, in the old days when I used to do therapy, they would say, well, what is love really? I mean, does anybody really know what it is? And now I get to say, well, actually, yeah, you know, read this book, Love yeah, 2.0, no. Barb Fredrickson has it down. So I'd like to hear this argument or this um, context around sin, because I think our brains do this marvelous thing of, you know, adapting and understanding our environment through these definitions, because there is a brain chemistry involved. Yeah, I think it's helpful to think about it in that way, just just like as you were explaining love, and it's applicable, right? It, it's applicable to people's lives. So the first thing that I'd like to, to kind of put forward is that sin is an emotion uh, that nearly everyone gets to experience. Uh, and the only reason that I, I kind of want to harp on that is because it's outside of understanding uh, the sort of biology of it, um, you know, it, it's very possible to confound sin with lots of things. Uh, but the, the insight, I think, that the neurochemists and the neuropsychologists, they have that insight is that so much of what we feel we're actually experiencing at the biological level. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one of the key insights. Mm -hmm. So I should say something about how I think about sin and what it feels like. I think sin feels like that thing that you know you shouldn't be doing. Um, like you know you shouldn't be doing it. But that in and of itself is, is complicated because the should, should is inherently complicated. Uh, and I think there there might be historic time between what the religious folks saw however many thousands of years ago and the context that we're in now. Uh, one of the things that shifted is our shoulds. Our shoulds have shifted. We've had shifted shoulds. Um, Shifty shoulds. Our shoulds have shifted mostly because of individualism, uh, specifically enlightenment, post-enlightenment individualism. The things that we needed to do... Um, like you think during the the era of guilds and everyone, you know, if you were if you were a man and you had a trade, if you were lucky, you came from a guild class or a trade class, or you were a peasant on you know somebody's land and you had to pay the landlord in all these different ways. The amount of talents, the amount of gifts that you had, the amount of learning that you had in the world was very minimal, and the things that you needed to do, the things that you should do, were very restricted to you get up. You do the farm work or whatever it is that you sure. do in this very narrow sense. Mm -hmm. And those were your shoulds. Uh, there were some religious shoulds that I, I think that were mandated by whatever religious structure that you found yourself in. Um, Are we talking about primarily the West? No, I mean, in, in anywhere before um, before individualism like really took hold. Uh, so I think the West probably has the strongest sense of modern day post-enlightened individualism. But there are places, too, like China now, or places like even the Gulf, where I think people are really uh, exploring their individualism in a different kind of way. Okay. And that changes the nature of shoulds. Um, so before, it was your, there was an external sense of these are the things that you should do, but you also had an internal sense of, and this is the important one, you had an internal sense of what you should do. If you're a farmer, say, for example, and you know that you should get up and till this field so that you can plant in the next, you know, during the season. If you don't, um, you're messed up for the rest. Of yeah, you're not going to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that should is really an internal sense of, oh, I need to do this. Uh, 
Sure, maybe your landlord might say something. Maybe your wife might say something. Maybe your kids might say something or whoever it is that you, and I'm sure there are loads of family on one parcel of land during serfdom. But there's an intrinsic sense too that if I don't get up and do this, I'm not going to eat. So there's not a lot of negotiation there. It's kind no, of get... like, this is what has to happen in order for everything to fall into place for the next calendar year, basically. Right. Yeah. I need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and people could tell me that I need to do it, but I also know, mm-hmm. I know that I need to do this for myself. Uh, when, that, when that context changes, though, to where we are now, where there's not that much that I have to do. That's really interesting. Um, and the things that I have to do now are mostly dictated externally, right? They're mm-hmm. extrinsic. Your boss might say that you have to do this, but if you don't and you're willing, say you're willing to like, face being fine, you don't have to. Well, it's interesting because it goes back to that example. Do I have to wash my hair? Do I have to do the dishes? Do I have to like feed the cat? I mean, you probably should feed the cat. cat's going to not be eating until five o'clock when you get home but you know do i have to get up and till the soil so that i can plant before you know sunset because this is the first day of whatever i don't know how farmers work (laughs) yes i do i do have to do that otherwise i'm behind it is such a different negotiation now yeah it's so different yeah there are farmers still today but you know and the farmers you know a lot of them still have the same thing if i don't get up Nobody eats, including my family, including my community. I have to do this. Um, so what happens in, in this shift it should, uh, or you know, having the context of should shift from it being less individualist and more kind of communal and just structural to now we find ourselves in a context where our individual pursuits mean that there's a lot that we don't have to do. And a lot of our shoulds, come from the outside you should really you know for so many people who are alive that i know now the the lion's share of their shoulds come from their parents their parents tell them from when they're very young you should do this you should do this you should do this um and you know i mean that part of that that's the job of parents parents should do that um but then you end up in a place where you have your parents voice and you're fully an adult and you're trying to figure out what it is that you should do and all you hear is your parents' voice. So I'm talking about should because I think should is related to sin. But I don't want it to be confused with obedience, right? Obedience is this voice from the outside. And disobedience is, let's say, not listening to this voice from the outside. But every now and then you have a sense of should, I should do this, where it's not coming from any other place other than you. You know for your own benefit that this is a thing that you should be doing not because you were told not because you're remembering your parents voices it's i know that i should eat better for example or i know that i should stop smoking right or whatever it is that you think for your own future benefit and there's a relationship between the now this this present tense and your future good and they're in a they're in an exchange program mm-hmm. right and and very much of what you want is this better sense of a future And that means that in order to get that, you're going to have to give up some of the things that are right now that you really sort of attach to, that you really latch to. And so humans have an interesting thing. This is where I think sin comes in. Sin comes in once you've identified what you yourself have identified your intrinsic should. 
I really should eat better, right? And then you find yourself in a place where you're not eating better. It's not because your doctor told you to or anything like you want to eat better for yourself. And then you find a place where you're not doing the action. And it's that that dissonance between the thing that you know you should be doing for yourself and yet you still are not doing. And maybe Paul was onto something in, in the way that he described it. Uh, you should be doing it and yet you're not doing it. And why are you not doing it? Well, and I was curious as to, I'm probably asking a question that you're about to answer. So here's where I wonder neurologically what's happening, right? So I can imagine that whatever it is, perhaps, and you might be able to answer this. So I can imagine that moment, whatever chemical you're trying to, you know, whatever chemical that is most um, desired, is that of not having some kind of negative uh, effect, right? So it's not necessarily, I don't think not doing the things you wanna do is giving you like the dopamine hit, but it's certainly not putting you in some kind of discomfort where cortisol levels are rising or you're experiencing some kind of, you know, um, amygdala, you know, uh, crisis around fight or flight. so I'm wondering, then, that's where the science comes in. The, uh, why can't I? I do the very thing that I don't want to do, says Paul. Um, I do the thing that I hate, and I know that I shouldn't. Why is this? Is, that, is this where the science comes in? So this is where my theory comes in. You know, this, this, is, yeah, this is my pet theory. There's, ahead, there's no I science to send yet, um, and I don't have access to uh, fMRIs. So, um, Makes sense, though. Right. But, but I, I think you're on to it. So there is a window. You've identified this is what I should be doing. And then you don't do it. And I think you're right. There's some small uh, secondary gain that you get when you start doing whatever it is. I think one of the examples that so many people can relate to is when you are scrolling too long on something like Instagram or Facebook or something like that. Right? You're scrolling along and there's something else that you need to be doing that you've identified for yourself that Mm -hmm. I need to be doing this. Mm -hmm. You can get some initial dopamine hits off of the first two minutes or so, three minutes. But at some point, especially by the time you've hit 20 minutes, once you've been scrolling for 20 minutes, this other chemical will start to build up. You'll start to feel another feeling and it'll feel really bad. You might not be able to, so there's a trick that's built into all of these scrolling things. Like humans have a completion mechanism. We want to see things complete. We want to see them come to an end. We love the ends of stories. Resolve, yeah. Right? We love that. Yes, resolve. Music, everything, yeah. It's great for us when things are wrapped up in a bow. Mm -hmm. And part of your desire, you know. And don't watch French film, but go ahead. (laughs) Avoid French films if you want a happy ending. Um, Part of, of what your brain is trying to do as you continue to scroll is feel a sense of completeness. Uh, there, there are even all these, um, one of the things that the, the millennials and especially the, the Gen Zers are really into are these um, satisfying videos mm-hmm. because they find it so satisfying. But so much of that has to do with things being perfectly in their place yeah. or cut the right way. Mm-hmm. Human, the human brain loves that sense of it's, it's complete and it's perfect. Mm-hmm. And you're scrolling and you're waiting for that, but it never comes. And now your brain is in, it's tricked, right? It loves the novelty. Every new picture, every, you know, it lo- it's, that's dopamine, but it's also not getting the satisfaction of, of, uh, of the, 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 the scrolling being complete. 
And so there's a feeling that comes along with that. And it's actually a bad feeling. Now, if you have something to do in addition to that, you'll get that feeling sooner. It might be four minutes into it, it might be three minutes into it, but you'll start to have a gnawing sense. And I think that gnawing sense, like that's what sin is. So if, if you'll allow me, the only reason this got on my radar is I'd already started thinking about human emotions within the context of biochemistry because of people like uh, Jonathan Haidt and Barbara Fredrickson. If all of the feelings that we feel are chemical, then when you get that feeling, what is it? What is it? I'm sorry. I'm doing. I'm doing a scrolling motion that people can't see. Uh, but when you scroll too long, what is that feeling? And it's very much like when you are, you know, when you need to do a paper at school or something like that, and you're not doing it. But if you pay attention to that feeling, then you can identify all the other times in your life where you feel that same feeling. You can identify with the emotion. And I think the thing that emerges is something like, if you dial back the clock before individualism, there are some things that, let's say God has asked you to do, or your priests have asked you to do, or your rabbi have asked you to do. There are some things that you should be doing before the individualist context that were all sort of dictated by this internalized sense of, of how the world was working then, right? It, a lot of it would have been religious. Not doing it would have caused that feeling. It's the same feeling of, oh my God, I got to pick up the kids and I'm watching these last five minutes of Friends or whatever it is. I know I'm going to be late. I know that the te- you know uh, the teacher is going to yell at me and you, you can't stop doing it and it feels a little bit bad, but you still want to see what's going to happen. I'll deal with that later. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. That, that's sin. That's the feeling of it. That's the emotion of it. Um, is this your doctoral work? This is this is this is my 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 it really thesis. Should be. This is my thesis right here. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? Because um, I I really can resonate with what you're describing. You know, we talk. I, I talk often with my clients about facing discomfort. What it means to go. You know, procrastination comes up enough. I've been doing this for a long time now, and this comes up. And oftentimes what we talk about in terms of procrastinating is it just doesn't feel okay to have to go forward and do the thing that I don't want to do. The paper, the clean out, the taxes, whatever. And they can't get past that idea that this is not comforting. Mm -hmm. So the dopamine, which, which I think is where you took us when you talked about scrolling, that comes from I'll do something else. I'll drink wine and watch movies. I'll um, I'll call a friend. I'll go. You know, I could even go for a run instead of you know doing this paper because I'll feel good when I get back. You have to reckon, and this is what is so tricky about this because the procrastination comes to this place where you eventually have to reckon, and everything gets all tangled up in there. Like I know I should have done this six six days ago I'm, yeah. I'm talking to a client right now i can't give the context but they're talking about um what has happened at this point in the game of what they've needed to turn in and what they'd known a week ago that they needed to turn in all the steps that they've taken to um keep from facing the thing that they know that they really had to do this i, mean, I can't tell you the, <laughs> the what they had to do they really did have to do this they get to this place where the day comes 
and it feels awful, just awful. And my client was talking about each day as it was passing, like what they knew that they needed to face and they would then mitigate that feeling by doing something else. And then another day, mitigate the feeling, another day, mitigate the feeling. And it's interesting when you talk about the scrolling part, because I think there are ways that we can find comfort in right. other in other areas and we can give our brain, you know, this chemistry jump, this chemical jump. Um, and that's easy to find, particularly now with the internet, we can find it or Netflix or whatever it is that we can do electronically that brings us this comfort, which I think gets back to your point about independence these days. It's very a solo, it's a solo journey. Um, and, you know, I think that this idea that that being sin, it sounds a little like archaic, but if, if your definition plays out, it makes so much sense. I agree with you. It, it does sound a little archaic. Maybe it is, right? Thinking about it in these terms. Why are you calling it sin? Doesn't procrastination do the work of sin already? We all understand procrastination. Uh, we all understand what it means to stay on Facebook too long. Um, so how is it different? Um, that's a good question. That is a good question. <laughs> I'm glad you asked yourself that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you brought up the idea of procrastination. Um, procrastination and sin, I think, are important in, in, some, in some small ways, although I think the uh, sort of the way we think about the difference between envy and jealousy, envy and jealousy are different, but they're close enough in the human experience that a lot of people confuse envy and jealousy. Mm -hmm. There's some languages that, that don't even distinguish. Um, but procrastination has to do with a set of tasks that are, that are defined. And so I know I need to do this paper. Right. Uh, that's a defined thing. And procrastination, or I, I know I need to go to the gym today uh, and I'm doing something else. That's procrastination. Procrastination has, I think, to do with a very defined set of, of things that um, the task is defined. Procrastination can also happen both consciously and unconsciously. So say, for example, if you know that you need to do this paper, but then you end up cleaning the house. Mm. Uh, you're procrastinating even if it's not your intention to clean the house. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know that the reason that you're cleaning the house and that you're cooking all of these meals and I'm doing totally. meal prep for the week is you're procrastinating mm -hmm. whether it's conscious or unconscious. Right. Sin, I think, has to be conscious. It has to be a decision. Mm. And sometimes it feels amazing. Mm. And I think this is where people get in trouble with the sin. Sometimes it feels great. Sometimes it, it maybe doesn't feel so amazing, but it's still a very conscious choice that you're making. I'm going to do this thing so that I don't have to do this other thing that I should be doing. So you're saying that with sin, according to the show in your context, is that it needs to be intentional. I Absolutely. Hmm. I do not think that you can sin unintentionally. Ah, interesting. Um, the other part about that is... Um, it is how the task is defined. So there are, I would say there are orders of sin, right? Some sins are greater than other sins uh, to sort of echo the, the religious language. Well the, um, religious, well, the Christian religious language says that all sin is equal. Isn't there a greater sin in like uh, killing yourself or something? Just one. It's the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's, well, a, there's a gradation. Uh -huh. uh, I, I think that there's a gradation as well, specifically this one. There are... Um, so we have to go back to the shoulds. 
uh, and there was a reason I brought up the shoulds in the context uh, earlier, was um, when you're on a farm or you're on a landlord's land, uh, your shoulds are very well defined. And your experiences are poorly defined because they, they're pretty much all the same as your neighbors. But now we have different talents, right? And I'll use talent in sort of a quasi-religious sense as well as uh, the way that you know, most people think about talents is you've brought all of this learning from all these different areas, whether it's your time in music or whether it's the time that I went to the coast of California and totally like explored my mind. Or yes, I went to that trip to Europe uh, and we had such a great time in France. Uh, whatever it is, accent. you, yes, the French accent. Yeah. Uh, you, you have this myriad of, of experiences that you've brought from around the world and the depth that you have is so much richer than someone who would have been going into a guild, mm-hmm. right? So 400 years ago, if you were going into a guild, you have a master sense of what it means to, you know, leaf gold on these doors, but you don't have these, this vast experiences that you've brought from around the world and all your, you know what I mean? Your life has been the same mm-hmm. for the most part. So the way that we construct our talents is different. And the reining all of those talents in what you learned in school, what you learned in the band, you know, raining all those talents and, and sort of condensing them into one offering. This is the thing that I'm offering to the world is not nearly as easy. Um, but, but, but pursuing that, pursuing how to figure out what your core offering it is. So maybe there's an idea underneath this that I have to flesh out. I think that because of our experiences, there's something unique that every individual has to offer to the world that no one else can offer. You know, there's a, an, it's not an adage, but it's like a, a colloquialism that says, don't don't go to your, your grave with the music still in you. Really? Ha, I've not heard this you, Have you never heard this No, before? I usually know the things and you don't, but don't go to the grave with Yeah, music don't go to the grave you. with your music still in you. Got um, it. But I think that everyone has some music in them. And all of the, you know, whether it's Michael Jackson or Prince, they're both dead, but their music was different or anybody else, right? That you, the music that you have in you is different because of your experiences. It's just yeah. because of that's what you've true. learned, right? That's absolutely true, yeah. And that's what I think. That's exciting, actually. I, I think Sorry. so, too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so it means that you have this music to offer to the world. And then sometimes, instead of offering our, world, our, our music to the world, we let our music fester. We don't develop it. We don't pay any attention to it. You know, we spend 40 years at the post office. There's no offense to anybody who works at the post office. This post office is on my mind right now because of what's happening in the country. But you spend 40 40 years of your life at the post office and you don't do anything else to offer to the world. It's just your job is, you know, I have to make an exception. There might be someone who works at the post office who loves yeah. being at the post office so much and they are like the best, whatever it is they like, do. I love my customers. That, I love... Right. That, that is people? their offering. Mm-hmm. That's not the person I mean. Okay. I mean the person who's, who sits right next to them who's like, ugh, I can't stand this job or whatever it is or like, oh, I'm okay with my job but I'm living for the weekend who they never get around to, to offering their music to the world. Right? And sometimes it, it's, it's when I'm watching Orange is the New Black and I haven't developed anything and the only thing that I'm offering to the world is just my labor and none of my passion and I haven't come to life that that's that's a, that's a higher order of sin mm. I would say the highest order is you've actually identified it now you you have a clear sense of 
oh, actually, I'm here to do this. You know, I speak, you know, I speak French and I make good bread. And now I live here in the United States. And um, it makes Americans sad that they don't have uh, good bread. And I, I just so happen to love making bread. Mm. It, I feel like it's my calling. Mm-hmm. If all of those things line up and you feel like it's your calling to be making bread for Americans. And instead you don't do it. You shirk that. You say, oh, I could be making bread, but I'm afraid. I could be making bread, but I'd rather, you know, uh, I'd rather... Uh, chase some boy who doesn't love me back or some girl who doesn't love me back or I'd rather watch TV and you know you should be making bread that I think is the greatest of sins you've identified the thing that it ties all of your experiences all of your passions all of your love together and then you still ignore it that I think is the greatest sin that's that's good Raphael I like that a lot um what do you think about this so a long time ago, I read this um, this book called the, Sh- the Showings. It's um, it's a kind of a manuscript interpretation of this woman who um, I guess they determined that her name is Julian, Julian of Norwich. But I guess really nobody really knows if that's her name because back then religious teachings weren't to come from women. Um, born in thirteen forty three. Wow. Yeah, she's very old. <laughs> Um, so I'm not going to go too long on this, but anyway, I uh, came across his book and the showings are Julian's visions of her. She became very ill at one point and, um, her prayer was to see the sufferings of Christ. Some people say she was mentally ill. Um, people of faith say that she had divine visions. Um, all of that is up for grabs. Not really what I'm considering in this question. But one of the things that stuck out to me, I I was young when I read this. I think I was like probably very early 30s, maybe 30, um, going through my own, you know, tragedy uh, that I don't need to talk about right now. (laughs) Um, And I read this context that she had, the, the context of sin, that she said that she had had this vision of that Christ had given her. And she had this vision, and I'm going to say what I remember, and people want to look this up. It could be a little bit different, but I think this is the gist of it. Um, she saw uh, that she said the vision or the showing is that there is this person in this ditch. This ditch was deep and had been dug, and this person fell into the ditch. She said the sin was not that the person found themselves in the ditch, that somehow they had fallen and had been at the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not the sin. Um, she said the vision um, of the sin was that this person now um, has acquiesced to the ditch. They're no longer trying to get out. Right. And so she, it, it really resonated with me. It was like, oh, it's not really these things that we fall into. It's our lack of um, care to do something different. So she was saying, you know, now this person is stuck in the ditch. They're not reaching up to find something else to bring them out of this ditch. So they just stay. They, think, it's, it's kind of this waste. They're just always in the ditch. I think that's critical. I think that that's it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it's ignoring the things that you could do, that you should do, mm-hmm. and you don't do. Um, I think that that's, that's it. It's kind of the sin of not, yeah, the sin of not offering, which is what you were saying. Right. Um, you know, what is the music that you 
are, you know, that you've been organized to give. And as you described, everyone with our own individual experiences, have, we all have something that we are here to offer. Um, if we don't offer that, then that's the sin. Yeah, I think that that, that is the sin. Well, I, I want to see if I can squeeze this, this, this last thing in for our last however many minutes that we have. Because um, we said a lot about what it is, but, but what's the point? Why, like, why are we talking about sin on this kind of show? Yeah. Um, I think that we can navigate by our sin. That is to say, there are enough of us who don't, who have no sense of uh, what it is that we should be doing. But we know the feeling, right? We know, we all know the feeling, at least from scrolling too long or from watching Netflix too long or whatever it is. If you can, if you can hone into that feeling and then compare, when are the other times? Um, then I, that I have that feeling. Uh, so say, for example, you're, you're scrolling too long. You might ask yourself, what should I be doing? Hmm. Right. Instead. Um, and, and, and just pay attention to that feeling. And then every time that feeling pops up, ask yourself, what should I be doing? Mm -hmm. And eventually what I think you'll notice is you'll notice your shoulds and you'll have two classes, classes of shoulds that you have inherited. Your parents said, you should do this. I should do this. Mm -hmm. But then you'll also have a sense of, oh, I should really do this. And it's not because it came from the outside. But internally, I think that I should do this. And when you start to have those things uh, juxtaposed, right, this feeling of I should be doing this thing and the feeling of I'm not doing it and I feel bad about it, the feeling of sin, then I think that that shows you the direction that you should go yeah. in. Uh, that's the thing. Go do that. Go do that. Do that thing. Uh, and I think that that can make a tremendous amount of difference in how we begin to navigate our life from just being on the couch or just yeah. hating our 40-year post office job yeah. to actually offering our music. Totally agree. Um, I think I want to say, just as listening to people, you know, in, in terms of my clients, um, I think it's important to note that there could be an incongruency when you say, just go do that. The incongruency is this will feel uncomfortable. Mm. Um, it, it's not just that you are presenting yourself with this better opportunity or something exciting. Right. A lot of times the reason why you're avoiding it is because it doesn't feel okay or it's going to take some effort or you're going to have to face something you don't want to face. So you sit with the discomfort and the incongruency. You know, I'm going to go do this, but I'm not going to feel amazing about it. The amazing comes later. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this home renovation project and I'm telling you, to get myself to get there was so dissonant. But I'm now, just now, after billions of garbage and painting, I'm starting to find this is it, you know? And that's a that's kind of a funny example because it's not like my life mission. But there is the incongruency right. that you first have to work with. And just sit with the discomfort. It's okay. Go be uncomfortable. I'm glad you mentioned that because you're right. It's not going to feel, a lot of the times... Even if you're literally songwriting, getting the you know totally. the song out, it, it might not feel amazing, but you have to sacrifice, as we were saying in the beginning, to sacrifice that whatever that nowness for that greater thing that's in the future. Um, and you're right, that's not it's not going to feel. Yeah, and amazing. you know to invoke you know more of this like you know uh, scripture, you know that that the the scripture talks about that sin um, happens or people are in engaged in sin because it's so enticing mm -hmm. you know that you're kind of you put your toe in and then you're kind of dragged away into the sin because it feels so nice 
I think it can be, yeah. I mean, it yes. can feel nice, yeah. Yeah. So e- even as we end here, like I fully acknowledge, <laughs> this is just a theory that that came out of my head. Uh, there's no science to Great. it. Great, I love there's it. There's no science. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There's no science to it yet. But but you know, looking at looking at the relationship between yeah. emotions and human experience and the biochemistry of it, I think that the feeling, the biochemistry of this thing that people have talked about absolutely. for so long, I actually think that yeah, there's something to it. Yeah, you're onto something. Um, absolutely, yeah. So I certainly want to thank y- you for having yeah. indulged me and for everyone else for having indulged my uh, my pontifications uh, as well. No, I mean, you know, I think all of us listening, and me included, you could feel it. You can feel the rub. Uh, sin does feel like an emotion. You know, maybe that's, you know, the next, that's maybe the music within you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for listening. We um, have some things that we're trying to get off the ground. We have a book club that we're thinking of trying to get going in the fall. Uh, the book is, again, Raffo? Uh, Democracy in Black by um, Eddie Glaw Jr. So if you are interested, um, tech, send us a message on Instagram. You can go to the website, I think. The website's kind of in flux right now. You're working I'm on it. I'm doing it right now. Yeah. Um, send us a message on, on Instagram. We'll cap it at a particular number, but um, we're going to do it on Zoom, and Rafael's going to lead it, and it's a chance for us to all keep talking in this climate in which we all really, really need to talk. So show up. We'll, we'll figure it out, and uh, just send us a message if you're interested. Thank you so much for listening. We've been on a little bit of a break. We're back. And um, appreciate your tuning in. Talk to you in a week. See ya.